welcome to the second talk conversation really between Mark Strong and I on the subject of knowing. In the first talk, what we did was we tried to renovate that word knowing, um, take it out of its dry, arid intellectual box, take it out of the box that had it as a contrast to faith and the faith reason uh, polar pol polarity and make it a bigger word. And we did that by really linking it to something very intrinsic in human beings, understanding wisdom, and particularly in the idea that what we're talking about when we talk about the word knowing is truth or light. And to live lives in the light is, is a great calling of God, but it's, it's, it's not even a religious task. It's a task for all of life because if we don't walk in the light, if we, if we walk under deceit, if we walk in shadows, then clearly our life is highly vulnerable. So nothing could be more important once you reframe knowledge this way. And we, we uh, tried to do that in the first talk. This talk, this conversation, is really a breathtaking sweep. You'll have to, as we often say, or as I often say, put your seatbelt on, uh, because it is um, really a mesmerizing trip that Mark takes us on. The, uh, it'll help in the trip if I give you a little bit of a roadmap of where this conversation goes, because like, a genuine conversation. The, the great German philosopher Gadamer said, one of the hallmarks of a genuine conversation is you don't quite know where it's going to go. So um, having done the interview with Mark, I now know where it went. Uh, so he, he looks at two passages from the Bible. Um, one is Acts chapter 17, the very famous uh, sermon or talk that Paul gave on Mars Hill to a largely non-Jewish audience, to a, a Greco-Roman audience of, of sceptics. And the second thing he does is then moves to Philippians chapter 2. And the essence of what he says is this, the instinct in every human being is towards a broader horizon of meaning. The knowing that we seek has a horizon beyond facts and data. And that horizon is well described by this trilogy of words of faith, hope, and love. Hope is the one that is probably most evident in Acts 17. And, and, and wonderfully, Paul uh, does not address the crowd as if they have no hope. He actually recognises the hope they've got, which is evidenced in their um, idolatry. So he doesn't criticise their idolatry. He actually acknowledges it and he actually says that it's an instinct. It's an instinct that's uh, noble, an instinct that's towards the good. But it's an untutored instinct. This is the critical point Mark makes that whilst we all human beings have the instinct for meaning and the instinct for, for um, a purpose, that instinct needs a story to instruct it. 
uh, as he says, for the Jews, they had the story, but not the ending. And if you don't have the ending of the story, it makes no sense. For the Gentiles, they didn't even have the story. So he doesn't come in saying totally negative things. He comes in acknowledging that as humans, uh, the subtext that Paul has as humans, made in the image of God, you Greeks are definitely, definitely heading in a direction that God wants you to head in, in a direction of inquiry. But let me tell you the story that makes sense of it. And that story is a story where he goes straight to the end of the story, which is the resurrection. As I've often said about Acts 17, I, I give people a little test. It's one of the, of course, famous uh, evangelistic sermons uh, in, the, in the New Testament, in the Acts of the Apostles. And uh, I ask people off the top of your head, you know what he does not mention in his evangelistic sermon? Um, well, the, the answer is he doesn't mention sin, he doesn't mention judgment, and he doesn't mention the cross. He, he goes straight to the resurrection because in the resurrection, he declares to these people who worship Augustus Caesar as a demigod, he says, uh, and the ruler of the world, he says, no, no, look, the ruler of the world is this man, Jesus. He is actually the code that finishes the story. And then Mark takes us into Philippians 2, which is almost an amplification of Acts 17. What did he mean by this? Because Acts 17 is, is very succinct and abbreviated. But in Philippians 2, the great uh, hymn, um, the anthem really probably of the early church, uh, this incarnational anthem of a person, a life that was absolutely, in a way, inevitable once you look back, that God would finally communicate to us in a person. And he... Uh, in Philippians 2, he widens uh, our sense of the word knowledge into the word wisdom, gives us a bit of a lesson in Greek, phronesis, the, their word for wisdom, the language Paul's praying, um, that Paul's using here, and the, the, the very famous phrase, let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus. Well, that's a knowing thing, but the word mind is phronesis, let this wisdom, let this way of looking at the world, let this way of being, which was in Christ Jesus, be in you. And that will be the source of the light you walk in and the blessing you, sh you shed abroad. So that's the trajectory of the talk. Uh, by the way, uh, on the way, he takes us right back into Genesis 1 um, and fast forwards into Romans as well. Um, rehearses the very important theme of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil versus the tree of life. Um, and that these categories of faith, hope and love are categories that are not good and evil categories. They're categories of life and they're categories of life that we see evidence in the life of Jesus. So this talk will be um, one that really will repay a couple of, uh, a couple of listening listenings. Um, enjoy it. And I certainly enjoyed uh, sparring with Mark uh, again. He's got so much to offer us. Thanks, Mark. Okay. Hi, Mark. Hi, Tony. Uh, so we're, we're off on um, number two, conversation number two, uh, um, where we we really looked last time at knowledge 
and try to repackage knowledge in a more, uh, I suppose, living way, more relevant way. Um, and that uh, where where what we what we talked about was the way that the word knowledge in our modern society, on both the Christian side and the secular side, has got narrowed down um, yeah. in a variety of ways. Um, what, one of which is the polarization between faith and reason, mm. and I think that polarization has has done nobody a service. So, on the yeah. Christian side, it's oh, it, it's made Christians retreat to the polarity of faith, i.e. experiences, um, leap of faith, um, and a characterization of knowledge as almost an optional extra that, that I would think there would be very few Christians who would put knowledge as an aspect of discipleship. I know growing up that I often heard it talked about as though um, it was dangerous for faith. You know, right. it, could, it could be destructive of faith. Yeah, it, it, exactly. I think I felt the same way. Um, whereas, uh, as as we have found out, um, actually, the opposite tends to happen. That your trajectory of inquiry and exploration is uh, enriches faith. Yeah, I, I remember actually one of my. Um, New Testament professors, one that I revered actually, and and you know, I'm still very grateful for his contribution to my life and my thinking. But when I mentioned to him about where my thinking was going, this is what is it now, 30 more years ago, um, in terms of wanting to understand the the Greco-Roman background to the New Testament, you know, influenced by Edwin Judge and others, and and just really wanting to kind of paint for myself a picture of, of what on earth did these things mean, you know, day to day in the first century. And, um, and he wrote to me, um, I, I wrote to him in a kind of excited way, you know, thinking that he would be really pleased for me and, and want to, you know, feed, feed into my, my thinking. But instead he wrote to me saying, um, no one who ever goes down this track uh, ever ends up seeing church the same way. And, oh. and that was his reason for me to not go there. And, uh, and I just found that strange on so many levels. Um, of course, he was right. <laughs> but, uh, but that means he was seeking to protect a certain knowledge more, more than explore where the, where the text and the history might take you. Indeed, indeed. Uh, as a matter of fact, coincidentally, um, this morning, Anne and I were reading Isaiah 50. We're travelling through Isaiah um, which is uh, a uh, kind of, it, it reminds me of, you know, when you go to these theme parks, you go on these wonderful roller coaster rides. It's yeah. exhilarating <laughs> up the hill and then down. And yeah, it's, it's got definitely got some highs and some lows. <laughs> <laughs> so, but we're reading the servant song where it says, the sovereign Lord has given me, this is Isaiah 50 verse 4, an instructed tongue. Uh, to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. Mm. And I think that's very relevant to what we're talking about. Yeah, and it, you know, it hopefully it'll come out as we move along, whether now or next time. But, you know, when I hear that, I just, um, I hear that the category of wisdom 
is is a better way of framing that than the ways we tend to use the word knowledge. Yeah. I mean, I think the word knowledge deserves to have a, a richer and fuller and, and, and sweeter almost connotation, but, but it, it so often tends to be cold and boxed. And, um, and I think that to, to the degree to which we still struggle with that, wisdom is a, is a nice way of opening up. Um, and I think it's especially important in trying to understand where Paul goes um, in, in his way of unpacking the significance for, of Jesus's death and resurrection for how we see ourselves and how we see the world around us. Well, let's kick off on that because I think what we want to do now is go more deeply into the idea. Um, hmm. I think we framed the, we framed the, the idea of, of, uh, of knowledge being, um, uh, shaped by the coordinates of faith, hope, and love, which changes what we think the word is. And I, I like what you've just said. I mean, I think that probably the word knowledge is beyond rescue in common parlance. I mean, we've got to keep using it. It's in the Bible a great deal for a start. Yeah. yeah. But uh, I think wisdom would, would do, would, in common parlance, when you use the word wisdom, people get that it's got to do with some kind of proverbial um, empathy, street uh, um, insight, um, uh, care. It just feels like the word has a more spiritual moral edge to it than the word knowledge, which has got lost now. It's got hijacked well and truly. So yeah, in, in leadership work, um, it, when I introduce the word, you know, people sometimes have the kind of an esoteric idea you know it's like the guru on the top of the mountain in isolation and and of course that's quite ironic because in all the wisdom traditions uh, across the planet and in all ages um isolation is seen as foolishness not wisdom you know to cut yourself off from other people is not regarded as wise at all and um and in fact all through those traditions as much as in the old testament wisdom is really about what does it mean to live well um, and, and once you position it that way and saying, you know, how do, how do I need to see myself and to see the world and, of course, to see God um, such that I am able to live well and such that I am able to enable other people to live well? When you frame it like that, people go, oh, of course, this is, this is central. This is really important. And, and, that, and we are still talking about knowledge when we do this. Well, how about you take us into what you just said about wisdom versus knowledge or wisdom and knowledge in in one corinthians and you alluded to the fact that when you move to the resurrection the wisdom word gets prominent can you just unpack that a bit for us yeah so if i start back a little earlier in in um in acts when paul you know you know the story of when he goes up on the hill at athens in the the areopagus and um uh, it's an interesting speech you know you know he starts off you know athens i perceive you are um religious in every way for as I walked through the marketplace, I saw this, you know, an idol to an unknown God, that which you do not know, let me tell you, which is in itself is fascinating that he assumes they know, uh, which is something he makes a lot of in Romans in the first chapter of Romans, uh, first and second chapter of Romans. But it's interesting. If you imagine what you know, you're reading at the moment, Isaiah, can you imagine uh, an Old Testament prophet like Isaiah ever positively starting a talk from an idol? You know, like it's just unthinkable. Uh, as I. <laughs> yeah, but for Paul, uh, it, it's a convenient way to begin the conversation. You know, I, and it's not just a rouge. I mean, I think he's saying, you know, um, I, I acknowledge that you do know, but you don't know well enough. 
And as I'm often fond of saying, it's like for Israel, I think that the sweep of his argument across all of his books when it comes to Israel and the Gentiles is, is Israel's got the right story, but the wrong ending. And, uh, uh, and the Gentiles have the wrong story. Uh, and, and, you know, for Israel, it's a story that um, is still waiting for a Messiah to turn up. So they've missed the ending, uh, which is the new beginning, of course. And for, for Gentiles, predominantly, the, the story that is current in the first century is, is about uh, Augustus, Caesar Augustus. Um, and um, as we'll, we'll talk about it because it's so connected to the idea of wisdom. Um, the phrases, many of the phrases that Paul, that, that are common uh, at that time to talk about um, uh, Caesar and particularly about Augustus, um, uh, who's no longer alive, of course, at that time, but, but as the saviour of the world, as the bringer of peace, as the reconciler of all things, you know, um, these, are, these are words that Paul will transfer to Jesus. Uh, now, they do have Old Testament backgrounds as well, but, you know, as he often does, he's, he's doing this marvellous thing, which in itself is wise. It's a demonstration of wisdom to be able to draw out of two very different worlds and yet recognise there is something common here. And the commonness, of course, is that we're image of God. The commonness is that we were made to know God and we were made to see the world God's way, which is what wisdom is. And so he's able to go up on Areopagus and say, look, you know, you do know something, um, but you don't know it well enough. He quotes to them from their own poets, which is fascinating, knows, knows them well enough to, to pit Stoic and Epicurean against each other while he's talking, and then brings it to the crescendo. But rather than it being in, in the classic kind of philosophical style of, of I'm going to drop on you a concept a concept that is that is going to kind of eclipse your concepts and becomes the the sort of focal point for the next round of debate. Instead, what he what he introduces is the story, uh, and says, you know, um, uh, you know, this man proved, you know, raised him from the dead, and uh, which of course is just a, a complete nonsense in a in a um, classical uh, frame of mind. You know, if, if the gods can't get involved in the world without being polluted um, by it. Um, and if there's anything that exists afterwards, it's this disembodied soul. It's certainly not a resurrected human being. And, and what he's saying in this is, this is the central point of wisdom. He's, he's basically saying to them, if you want from here on to actually understand life correctly, that understanding has now got to be grounded in this act of God and this man raised from the dead. Well, this this is um, this is profound. Let's let's go into it. Um, uh, what you're saying about wisdom, uh, if I yep. just paraphrase it, is that wisdom for the disciple of Christ has uh, demands a very very much bigger picture yep. of the sovereignty of God over the whole world and the image of God in all human beings. Yeah. So such that we uh, re can re rename and reclaim God's um, foothold in every aspect of human life. Yeah. Uh, whereas I think what's happened a lot in evangelical Christendom, that broad uh, horizon doesn't exist anymore. It's been replaced by a retreat um, in, in, into a sort of a defensive mentality, a ghetto type. God's here, but he's not there, as it yep. were. So for him, he was able to see in Augustus Caesar rather than seeing him as an, a totally, a, 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 just a complete competitor, 
he was saying, um, and, and they're idols, rather than seeing them as competitors, say, you guys are reaching towards something and you, and, and you haven't got it. So like a great communicator, he begins with what we've got in common, not with what divides us. Yeah, and like all who reach towards something but deny the truth, you inevitably set up alternatives, false alternatives. Yeah, sorry, say that again. I just wanted to get that. So I'm going with you in terms of that idea of, I think he does see them as reaching towards, and he'll say that in some other places. Um, but if you, if you deny the true starting point, uh, though there's a, something commendable about the reaching, reaching towards knowing, if you deny the true starting point, then what will always happen is you'll set up false alternatives. Um, right. so, so when they see Augustus, it, well, Augustus, of course, makes the claims for himself, but it's like, yeah, yeah, that's it. That, that, that's, that's almost in a sense, that's like the Gentile version of a Jewish longing for a Messiah. Yeah, so you've got the right instincts, but if you don't get the right story, you'll be utterly open to perilous perceptions. Absolutely. And likewise, then his critique of, of his Jewish uh, um, uh, fellows is that, um, you know, you've, you've got the right story, but you've missed the ending. And for those particularly who embraced Christ, but still trying to hang on to Judaism, he's basically saying, you know, you, you're muddying the whole story, requiring people to be circumcised and keep um, dietary laws and the Sabbath, et cetera, et cetera. And to the point where, you know, he is saying to them, if you persist with this, you, you, you've actually lost connection entirely from what it is that God's done. So it's so crucial to go, I need to know the story and my thinking has to has to develop from there. Now, um, the uh, what you're saying um, about him, I suppose, honouring their their grasping towards truth, and he actually uses a phrase somewhat like this. Yeah. Uh, um, he says, "What does he say?" I'm reading from the NIV. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Yeah. Very, very, a very, very um, thought-provoking verse. Yeah. Um, it's I, almost like they're not far from us. It's almost like you can imagine Paul pointing back down from the Areopagus, pointing down to the marketplace and say, you know, there he is, there he is, but, uh, uh, you know, you, you put the wrong name on him and, 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 and further... An idol isn't going to represent him anyway, and you know. Uh... <laughs> I know, and um, I, I was listening this morning uh, to part of a talk from uh, the University of Notre Dame. Um, I think the guy's name was John Betts, but he was part of the David Bentley Hart crew. Mm. And um, in David Bentley Hart's work, uh, he he one of the things he is moving towards, well, not moving towards, but defending the uniqueness of the mind as not being reducible to mechanics of analysis. Absolutely. And the particular aspect of the mind, somewhat like Palanyi, that he says is the ultimate aspect of mind is intention. And intention is a poor word for uh, something which as a... I know as a lifelong lover of poetry and imagery, there is this overreach in, in every human being, which poetry gets completely. When I look at an object and I don't 
I'm not, I'm never ever really looking at that object merely 100% in terms of its own mechanics. Mm. I, there's a, I'm reaching beyond that object to the, the story it's telling me. Yeah. Um, and, and that broader horizon you could, you could call intent, uh, this guy was saying was actually a reach towards being <laughs> or yeah. meaning. Um, so there's a transcendent horizon in every human enterprise, even the most apparently pragmatic of enterprises, where in order for us to know the truth of the tree, we're looking beyond the tree. Um, uh, I was looking at a beautiful little gift I was given this morning, some flowers. And you, sure, you look at the flowers, but in my mind, there's no way that the mechanics of, of, of mind is merely at some kind of biochemical uh, calibration of the flowers. It's colour, it's uh, the thought that you gave them. You know, there's an overreach in every object. Yeah. And so if we say that's the human mind that's what paul is talking about when he said god gave us things so that we could reach beyond those things and yep. find the story behind them which ultimately getting that story right becomes important in terms of the faith hope and love in corinthians i love that phrase you used about you know reaching beyond that that is hope that's the very nature of hope of sensing that there is there's purpose um there's intent uh there's there's something waiting for us yeah, if we are to engage with this well. Um, that's what hope is. Um, that's, that, is uh, that, that is very significant. So if we, hope of course is a word that I think you and I would both know, the modern use of the word hope is a complete uh, reduction and dilution from its New Testament usage. Yeah, um, it, it becomes a kind of wishfulness. And, and I've actually, um, I have come across some in the management world sort of speaking derisively of the idea of hope that it has no place. And, and of course, what they're really talking about, and you and I would, would critique it as well, is this kind of um, banal, baseless wishing that you and I have seen so many times when people start to do strategy, you know, and, and they're just throwing out things that they have no conviction about whatsoever. Now, that's not hope. No. And, uh, you know, very practical example, uh, a, a, a significant one on, on hope as, as, a, as a way of getting to the truth. Because what, you, what we're saying is that the, rich, the, richer, uh, the, the richer range of meaning of the word hope, which the New Testament uses, and I like what you've said, is we'll put the word intent. It's a belief in mm. this, what I was talking about. There's a purpose and meaning beyond any event. Um, now you can get that wrong. That's an instinct we can we can work with, and Paul was working with it. Yeah. Um, uh, but in order to shape that that hope, you need the story that explains the hope. You know, go, go, going back to what Isaiah was saying, we Christians need to be um, what does he say? You know, the, the instructed tongues. We need to know. Let me tell you the story. That if we don't have hope. Therefore, for instance, if we have skepticism, the very common thing in the world today is skepticism, uh, pessimism, um, a corrosive uh, cutting down of, um, of meaning. We could say those are lies. They're, yeah. they're, the false, they're as false a story as Augustus Caesar being God was to the Romans. Yes. Um, 
So here's the interesting thing about skepticism, if, and this is why, for me, faith, hope, and love have got to be taken together. They're not they're not three parts. They are right. they're almost like three perspectives on on the one the mm -hmm. one act, uh, the one one engagement, is skepticism in the idea of it, it's it's good to question. It's good to look into things. It's good to not just simply be taken along for the ride by whatever that that's, those are good things. But what you know, you and I know only so well is that this skepticism is, is always accompanied by a certain sense of elitism. You know, I know better than you, I stand above you and, and I will, will dismiss all of what you say. It is, it is wrong. Um, and so I stand apart from you doing this, this uh, critique, whereas faith, hope and love understood together in the context of, uh, of um, feeling the need to question something, it does not stand apart. It's that I draw towards you saying, Tony, I'm just not sure about what you said. And, uh, and I have reservations about it. Um, but I don't want to draw away from you. I, I want to remain with you. Can we can we talk this through? But you need to know up front, I'm questioning it significantly. Now, that's an invitation to keep dialogue. Yeah. And that's, that's, uh, that's got to do with love. Yeah. Um, uh, in other words, <clears throat> I'm subordinating my questioning to our relationship. Absolutely. And there's an other centeredness in my questioning, which honors you. Yeah, and, and that's a lovely exp uh, expression of Paul saying, the greatest of these is love. Yeah. So here I am at a kind of epistemological crux, you know, which way am I going to go in my thirsting for knowledge and, and for truth? And, and this overriding concern of love comes in and says, I do not want to disengage from my brother, you know, yeah. or from anybody else for that matter. Um, so as far as is possible, I'm going to still keep moving towards you, even as I express my reservations. And that um, that love uh, has its source in the love for God. Yeah. Um, who is um, the source of all things. So the complete... I've been meditating on this recently to do with the idiocy and arrogance of the question, do you believe God exists? Yeah. I've always thought this question is so uh, petulant and arrogant. It's, it's absolutely uh, uh, laughable. Um, the, the question needs to be, so, so what that question is doing, it's putting uh, a human being in the, adjudicating position this is the skepticism yeah. I'm, I'm i'm actually bigger than god and i'm allocating to god um uh a part of creation like i believe trees exist and uh, god exists too um uh, uh whereas the, the 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 truer question is not do i believe god exists but um Rather, he is the source of all existence. Yeah. To, to go back to Acts 17, when Paul says, in whom we live and move and have our being, that's not a quote from the Old Testament. That's a quote from a classical poet. Uh, and, uh, and he agrees with it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah.
Yeah, and, and that phrase, just to take that phrase up, because I think it's very, very, uh, a very agile use of uh, uh, classical wisdom to his ends, has this prioritization that, that we are subsets of, of a higher being. Mm. We, we um, the question is, you know, does he believe we exist rather than do we believe he exists? Uh, he, he is the source of all. We are swimming in something bigger than us. That's what I'm, I'm grasping towards. And that, that, that's a mindset. I'm swimming in something bigger than me in, in any inquiry. Um, now, going back to your point, there is therefore this horizon beyond, no matter whatever I look at. Um, I can remember Michael York, our, our colleague from a, a long while ago. Now, Michael did a um, PhD in biochemistry, the chemistry of the cell. Um, wonderful um, listening to him talk about it. Yeah. What was also interesting was his story of the journey. So when he began his PhD, which it, it took him over 10 years, I think it took him a long while to do it, but anyway, because he was probably doing it part-time, but he said, what changed from the beginning to the end, let's say it's a five year period in biochemistry, was when he began, everyone says, we're almost there. We've almost got it all covered. We'll have the cell in a few years time, every bit of it nailed down. Yeah. What happened in the next five to 10 years as he did his PhD was absolutely knowledge increased exponentially, but the horizon receded even more. Yeah. And, and, and the arrogance had gone and people said, well, we know like exponentially more than we did five years ago, but we're in something that seems infinite. It just seems there's no end to this inquiry. Every, question yields more. Now, that could be seen as uh, a, a, a sort of fruitlessness, we'll never get there. But what, 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 what you've just said about love is that love is this complete otherness. And, and, and you know, I think in him, we live and move and have our being. There is this complete otherness I'm wrapped in. What the story tells us, which we know only the Jews got, is this otherness is utterly benevolent. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, it's, it's got our good at heart and there's love behind it all. I mean, you, you don't actually get to knowledge without, without knowing that love framed everything. Yeah. And it's beautiful. And it's beautiful. It's it did, beautiful. It... And, 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 and uh, the, um, you know, there's this sense of discovery on almost anything. Um, mm. I, I was having a lovely talk last night with one of my grandchildren. She's a sweet thing. She's 11. She's going into high school next year. And um, she's just earnest, little, industrious, wondrous thing. So I thought, well, what's it going to be like to go to high school next year? And she, oh, yes. So I, I'm thinking this is the opening to, you know, six years of life and professional development. She says, um, she said, oh, look, I've, um, I've got my locker sorted out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what's happening? I'm going to make it aesthetic, she said. So they get, she told me that lockers you get in year seven, they've got timber doors. And she said, I'm going to take a cutout because they put artificial turf out the back. I'm taking a cutout of artificial turf and I'm putting it in the locker. And on one side, I'm having my organizer and on the other side, I'm having a little tree. So this was her, <laughs> look at this. This locker is a microcosm of art for her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, it, 
It's, and you, it's, and I, you and I both know that if that instinct and desire in her is not destroyed by education, if somehow or another that is allowed, <laughs> pardon me, um, uh, uh, to grow, then that is, you, you know, you can be assured that um, her knowing will be rich and true. It will be rich and true. And, and there's joy in it. That's where the joy comes from. You said the, the, the joy in beauty. Um, I was going to tell a, a story because I do want to go back to Act 17 in a moment, but hope um, where you began uh, that this trajectory of um, purpose, I, I think that's a very useful uh, other word for hope that brings it uh, out of its um, first century context into our context. So, so there would be this sense of purpose and end to all things. Mm. And that's an instinct in people. People have this instinct that, that that's there. Mm. Um, can we just go back to Act 17? I, I like what you've done with uh, hope as intention and love as this absolutely primary sense of other-centeredness, which uh, is, finds its, its root in God. Uh, so love is not condescension. Love is uh, a sense that there is an otherness that's actually bigger than me, yep. that finds its real source in God. And I think you're, you're pointing to when Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being, he was, uh, he was able to raid the classical mindset and, and find that they have an instinct there too. Yep. Um, but then what you said was, if we don't get the story right, how we will be open to deceptions, idolatry being one, uh, the praise of Augustus Caesar being another. Um, and we know that praise of Augustus Caesar was, was not an incidental thing because it was a savage empire, a brutal empire. The, the story is unlocked, as, as you said, Israel had the right story, but didn't see the ending. Yeah. Um, and, the, uh, the whereas the classical people didn't even have the right story to begin yeah. with. What you said was, and which I'd like you to, to, to sort of develop a bit now, was that the actual ending of the story, we know remarkably in Acts 17, he doesn't actually mention uh, the Jewish concepts of forgiveness of sins and sacrifice for sins. He doesn't go there. Um, he goes to the resurrection and the rule yeah. of this man who walked the earth. And in fact, he says, he said today when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed, he's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. So the story, which is the wisdom, is now centered in Jesus, which we can use to recognize, deconstruct, diagnose all of life around us and live well. That's where you were going? Yeah, yeah. So let me go from Acts 17 for a moment to Philippians. Okay, um, um, a book that I, I love and spent a lot of time with many years ago. Um, and there's something in Philippians that, that speaks to all of this that uh, took me quite a while to realise. There is, in the, in the classical world, when they talk about wisdom, um, generally in the philosophers, they, are, um, when they talk about wisdom as a kind of a, some sort of ultimate principle of the universe. They're generally using the language of sophos, the Greek word sophos. Um, but whenever they start to, to talk about um, 
what it means to live wisely, um, uh, to perceive well, perceive the world. They use a different word. They use the, the idea of phrenesis. Um, and, um, and that actually, by the time of the first century, that's the word that people are using far more than, than sophos, when they're trying to describe what does it mean for a person to be wise. Now, it's really interesting. Paul uh, does this really interesting thing generally with, um, with classical and Greco-Roman vocabulary. Um, there's, there's certain words that he just avoids, like courage, interestingly. Mm -hmm. um, uh, he, he, you know, and Edwin, Edwin uh, did some great stuff on this many years ago. He just seems to avoid the word altogether. Um, he, he largely avoids the word virtue, uh, except that it pops up right near the end of Philippians uh, 4 as one of the last things in a list. In other words, he's dethroned it from, from the place that it has. Um, and likewise, uh, self-control in the list of the fruits of the Spirit. Um, he's dethroned it from its place as one of the four cardinal virtues. Um, so he, he has this thing of of um, not, not using, avoiding certain language. On the other hand, he has this way of taking certain words and, and turning them into something com completely different, uh, such as gospel, you know, good, good news. And, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a word that was used actually to declare the birth of Caesar. Ah, right, I didn't know that. Yeah, and the accomplishment of great acts of Caesar. So, so Paul and others in the New Testament will take the word and they will happily use it of Jesus. Or uh, another favourite, of course, is mystery, uh, the mysterion. And, and that's a word that's used sometimes with a philosophical dimension, but most often in terms of the cults, the so-called mystery cults, which often had a very strong connection to the Caesars. And interestingly... Um, Paul uh, always uses the, the, um, the singular, not the plural, um, but it's always about Christ. Um, you know, he, he is the mystery, the fullness of all wisdom and, and, and knowledge, you know, the, the mystery revealed now. Um, it's this idea of, of um, truth, knowledge, wisdom is not located in these esoteric practices of people sneaking off in the dark. Uh, although actually the, the, the mysteries in, in Greco-Roman life were far more mainstream than, than often the... Um, the colourful descriptions sound like, but he's just saying, no, 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 it's an open secret, you know, it, it's an act that has occurred and, and here now is truth. Now, interestingly, in Philippians, um, he takes uh, one of these precious words, one of these key classical words, phrenesis. Um, now, he doesn't use the word phrenesis, but he uses the cognate of it, phreneo, and, and he uses this word repeatedly in um, in Philippians, but the key to it all is that that um, uh, verse uh, chapter two, verse five, where we traditionally translated, "Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ." Yep. Okay. Um, and it's uh, it's the verbal form for now. Um, so, and what he goes on then to describe, of course, is this amazing story. You know, who who um, although having equality with God, did not regard equality as something to be grasped, entered himself, you know, the, to the form of a man, to form a servant, to death, to death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him and gave him the name above every name, you know, the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, not Caesar, not Augustus, Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, the story, <coughs> pardon me, the story itself is, is kind of like the, the complete inversion of the Augustus story. Absolutely. You know? Uh, so here is God's greatest act of strength, God's greatest act of, of wisdom. And this, of course, echoes 1 Corinthians with, 
you know, the, the inversion of those categories, you know, what looks foolish is actually strength, you know, uh, is actually wisdom, what looks weak is actually strong, etc. And And here what he says is, this is the story now. This, this is the bearing you take if you want to understand life. Okay? To understand all things, here is the story. Jesus is equal with God, but out of love, he lets it all go. And, and taking the form of death that he takes um, so that he'll be raised from the dead and, and he is now uh, above and beyond all of the imposter Augustus and everybody else could ever claim. Now, the logic of the, of the chapter kind of works in reverse. If you think of the starting point as that story, verses 5 to 11, then verse 5, sorry, 6 to 11, verse 5 is, okay, then let that story now shape your mind. Right. That shape right. your mind. Well, what does that look like? We'll go to the preceding four verses, okay? Right. Now, if you have any encouragement, any fellowship, da 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 da, um, be of one mind, right? Having the same love. And then the real crux of it do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others more highly than yourself. Now, the whole the, the, the big things in the classical world, I often think there's a kind of trifecta at work here. One is the power of Rome, the unquestionable power of Rome. The other is the, 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 the um, structures of rank and status, which just colour everything in life, absolutely everything in life. Um, and then the other one, which is more philosophical, but it still surfaces a point, which is the whole dualism thing. You know, what really matters and what doesn't matter. And there's nobody particularly walking around thinking about it like Plato, but what they experience, and it's connected with the elitism, what they experience is because you work with your hands, you, you, you are lesser. You are lesser. Just like I think I've said before that, you know, today you get phrases like bogan or westy or whatever as the kind of, you know, some sort of put down by people who live in more affluent places. In the first century, in fact, for a long period through classical history, the phrase, the equivalent phrase was, he works with his hands. He works with his hands, which is a phrase in, in Second Corinthians, Paul gladly uses about himself. You know, in other words, while you're putting me down, let me add fuel to the fire here. <laughs> so his argument is, if you want to understand what phronesis is, you want to understand what wisdom is today, it begins in this story of, of, of Jesus who has a quality with God but lets it go in order that he might... Uh, subject himself to life, to death uh, and resurrection on our behalf. Um, there's the great story. Let that story shape your mind. And here's the proof of it. You will in every way reject those structures. What will transpire in your life is something completely at odds uh, with all of, of those major structures of society. Now, he does something very similar, I think, in Romans 12. You know, the one that we know so well, do not be conformed. Um, the patterns of this world be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There it is again. Um, and, and what he's basically saying is, is uh, those two verses is, in view of the mercies of God, that is in view of the story I've painted for 11 chapters, 
if if this is true, submit just you know uh, no longer your 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 worship no longer belongs to Caesar because the the language that's used there is the language that was used of your obeisance to Caesar. He said no longer there, but it's to Christ. And and what's the proof of that? Well, don't be conformed to these big patterns, which you know when I was growing up was don't drink, don't smoke, don't you know whatever. Whereas for Paul, it's not those things at all. You know, it, it is these big defrauding uh, false shaping ideas and 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 uh, and actualities you know Rome's power and and all the rest of it be transformed by the renewing of your mind and uh, <coughs> and again verse three following <coughs> sorry what's the proof of that the proof of it is that your relationships change dramatically you know so I say to you do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought to but think of yourself with sober judgment according to the grace that's been given to you and he goes on to say well you're going to treat each other differently you're going to treat each other in a way that reflects this remarkable wisdom this remarkable reordering of life in your mind that is grounded in this story and the god behind the story not all the things you grew up with telling you how life had to be well, that's wonderful, Mark. I've just been sitting here with my head spinning a little bit um, um, because, uh, and, the, and the way I handle my head spinning is I'm going to take a deep breath and feed back to you what you've said because I'm sure I'm sure people listening will have the same head spinning. But but it's very important. I think what you're saying is very important. What I what one parallel story running through my mind as you were talking was um, from our dear friends in our local Bible study who were grappling, I wasn't there, but they were grappling with Galatians last night and uh, the fruit of the spirit. And the thing became, um, as Anne told me, and she did her best to rescue them, a terrible self-flagellation of, oh, well, we lose our temper in the family. Oh, we do this, we do this, this, this checklist of, of behaviors. That's what we've got to do. And of course, the attempt to emulate those behaviours is fruitless. It never works. I mean, yeah. um, what you're talking about is is what's really going on. And, and, and I like the fact that you've grounded it so completely, in this case, in Philippians. Yeah. The change is bigger. Now, the actual outworking of it could well be that someone lives a more erratic life, a more compassionate life, and is... A life of love. A life of love, but but you don't get there by without a without a renewal of your mind. So, so what I've heard you say is that um, we've taken this word knowledge, and we've started to amplify it, move it across into wisdom. Um, let's use that word, and uh, and that it is. Uh, um, now, wisdom is is the corollary of truth. Mm. which yeah. is light. So you need, if you're wise, you'll get the story right. So the story, the story is what's going to give light. Yeah. Um, and, and you began in Acts 17 and talked about the way he began with their current belief systems and unpacked them to reveal an a incipient hope, an incipient, they wouldn't use the word love, but I'm in something bigger. Um, yeah. And, and mystery, which is really a faith-type word. Uh, but he took those and said, look, you'll never get this right. These instincts that are in you, they're from being made in God's image. Mm. Um, but, but you need the right story to instruct you, going back to where I began with Isaiah, you know, that phrase I read this morning, Isaiah 50, that he has given me an, 
instructed tongue, you know. Now, you then went and said, well, the actual story makes no sense without the ending. Yeah. Um, and we know that's, that's true in literature. That's, a, that's actually quite a profound point. The ending, the ending of the story, the question is, what's the ending? Yeah. And, and you've gone to um, the incarnation and the resurrection, and, yeah. which is exactly where Paul went to in Acts 17. But then you took us to Philippians 2, which in a sense is an amplification of Acts 17, because Acts 17 is obviously a summary of what it said. Um, Acts 17 was about the resurrection and the rule of this man. And, and I think the judgment, which clearly is a challenge to Augustus Caesar. Yeah, absolutely. This, I'm now talking about the rule of the world. Of course, my mind goes to Hebrews 2, you know, and, yeah. and Psalm, um, Psalm 8, you know. Now, and this Paul, rule, what it's Paul all about. Writes this. Paul, hmm? writes this from a, Paul writes this from a Roman cell to, to people living in one of the major Roman colonies of the world. Philippi. Oh, that, 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 that makes it even, even bigger because what we see in Philippians 2, as you said, is, and I, so, 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 so the word you've given us is the wisdom word, phrenesis or it's cognate. Yeah. And I think very importantly, uh, you made the point in verse 5, your attitude should be the same. And then as you talked, you used some other phrases, uh, Romans 12, let this mind be in you. Now, all these words, are they're, they're, they're just connotations of not knowing and knowledge. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, uh, but in a, in, a, in, a, in a much more ethical, rich way. So this way of knowing, this way of being, this, this wisdom should be in you as in Christ. Then you went through the uh, story. Interestingly, the story that he... The story that he records in 6 to 11 of Philippians, again, I don't want, I was going to say I don't want to labour this point. I do want to labour it. Makes no mention of sin, mm. no mention of the traditional forensic punishment for sin. It doesn't mention that. It's an incarnational journey to resurrection, to suffering and resurrection. That's yes. his story. And that story is is the story of that 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 gives us uh to bring it back to faith hope and love yeah uh that we are it's ultimate hope ultimate meaning to do with all of life if you get this story right in your mind yep. this story will instruct you because it's, it'll 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 frame hope it'll it'll enrich and explain love this is the, the love the love is multi-layered the love god has for us and the love god shows yeah. and uh so can i we, hmm? can i bring something else into this yeah is you're saying that you know and i've emphasized that it's so important to know the ending of the story what's also really important and, and i know you know you've you've been a great advocate of this is knowing the beginning of the story yes. and um that in many ways, the whole thing about wisdom and knowledge, one way you can look at it is to say it is about returning to, to, to being human as we were intended to be, right? And except now, shaped after the resurrection, shaped after the second Adam, not the first Adam. If you go back, and I know, you know we've talked about this before, but uh, I'm not sure whether you know, folks listening to this will have heard us talk about this or not. But if you go back to the... To the beginning, you know, the first few chapters of the Bible, 
I've, I've long been intrigued by this whole thing about the two trees that are there, you know, the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, it's really important to recognize, to see what that second tree is. It's not the tree of the knowledge of evil. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, okay? That the fruit of this tree is that I see the world in terms of good and evil. Now, the, the, the narrative makes it really clear that that only enters into the picture after they dispute God's character and place in their lives and seek to be independent. Uh, and from, from then on, their lives are indeed uh, characterized by this knowledge of good and evil. Now, if you just wind back a little bit, if you imagine the kind of the picture that is painted of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, you know, so here's the world made in these, you know, extraordinary uh, patterns of the first six days. And, um, and in chapter two, you've got the man and the woman filling this, you know, um, and, and amazing things. Now, if you imagine, just, just imagine that that story went on and on and on and on and on and on, okay, uh, without any Genesis 3. Then you've got people uh, doing all the things they were meant to do. So creating music and hybridizing tomatoes and, and building towns and, uh, and coming up with novel ideas in geometry and leverage and engineering, not to mention having children. Uh, and all of this is exactly what they're intended to do, right? That is to be the image of God. That is to reflect the one who is the designer and maker of all things, the one who, who holds up all things by sheer love and relationship, okay? Now, imagine that just goes on and on and on and on and on. But there is no knowledge of good and evil. In other words, there, there is no need for it. There is no reference point. Now, now, you and I and everybody else, we find it incredibly difficult to think about life other than in binary terms, you know, right and wrong, good and bad, um, uh, in or out, acceptable, unacceptable, um, yeah, you know, meeting, meeting the grade or not meeting the grade. You know, our, our lives, if, if you try it as a sort of thought experiment, it's incredibly difficult to, to sort of wash ourselves of this kind of binary way of thinking. If you think about, as you and I have seen in the, the corporate context, just how pervasive the idea of performance is. Now, now you, know, you know, we're not silly. We can see its, its uh, pragmatic value at certain places, but we see over and over again where it goes way beyond that. It goes to a, to a marking of the, the true value and nature of, of human beings. Now, imagine back in that earlier scenario, you've got all this wonderful design and industry and relationship going on. It simply does not need uh, good and evil as any reference point. Uh, it, it would be a nonsense, you know, is what you're doing good? Well, yeah, because God made it all and said it's very good. You know, oh, are you worried about evil? I'm sure, I'm not sure what you're talking about. I, I, I'm sorry, I don't have any idea about that. Whereas from Genesis 3 onwards, everything's colored by that. Now, if you, if you roll forward to Jesus and you look at his life, like the categories of good and evil just don't work. If you try to characterize his life, like, like when he breaks the Sabbath, which the gospel writers are, are, are very frank in admission that he does, right? Um, is that evil? You know, because he's done the wrong thing. Well, there's nothing in the narrative at all that would lead you to that conclusion about Jesus. But what you get is and 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 is faith, hope, and love. 
Um, so if I go, so I'm jumping around, but if you go back to that garden scenario of chapter two going on and on and on, it, they know by faith, hope and love. It's not something that is, is kind of a post-fall condition. I mean, how, how do they have true knowledge? The true knowledge is dependent upon God. That is faith. I recognize I'm not the center of the universe. You are. I recognize I didn't make all these things. You made these things. I recognize that I'm given this incredible room for agency and, and industry, but I still take my cues from you in terms of how things are. But I also recognize that um, we are the very industry of what we do, oh, this is, we are magnifying the glory of God. You know, there's this hope dimension to it. And in all of it, um, it is all just this extraordinary experience of relationship, of love and of, and of beauty. That's how I keep knowing truly is that I keep being uh, in wonder at God and who he is and what he's done and who we are and all the rest of it. Now you come to Jesus and, um, and all of his knowledge is, is in his being is characterized by faith. That is, he constantly makes reference to his father. I know who I am because of who my father is. My father has given me the things to do. I know who I am because of my place in the story of Israel. All right. Um, so it's not a, I'm independent. I don't need any of that to know, to know truly. It's no, no, I know truly because I am grounded in, in that. In, and it's not about independence or autonomy. Um, in all of his knowing, it is, in, you think of his parable, telling of the parable, every parable is about the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. Something is coming and it's going to blow all of your expectations. And of course, the, the big one is, is love. You know, it's, it's the father's love for him. It's his love for the father. It's his love for his disciples. It's his love for the cosmos, for the world. And those things are shaping every single thing that he does. Um, all the way through. And so it is that, um, that I, you know, and I know you shared this, we've argued that as important as the death of Jesus is, and it really is, and I don't for a moment want to minimize that. And I think, you know, that it's still important to be able to talk about sin and forgiveness and whatever else. But the point of the story is not the crucifixion. The point of the story is the resurrection. The crucifixion is the thing that must happen in order to get to the resurrection, because it's at the resurrection that the, that the second man is created. The new Adam is revealed. Um, and likewise, then, when you think about um, what it means to live within this, so you take that Philippians thing again, how do I orient myself? If the world isn't about good and evil, if that's, if that's not my reference point, if my reference point is the wonder of God and what he has done in Christ, um, then this upside-down story of Philippians 2, 6 to 11, leads me to the upside-down relationships of verses 1 to 4, where all the kind of ways that I've got of demarcating the world as you're right and you're wrong and you're good and you're not and you're up here and you're down there, it's, they just go. They just go. And, and, and what I find is that I can I engage in a way that I never have before. And if you pull, it means you can go up onto the Areopagus Hill and without going through all kinds of stuff that you can imagine Isaiah would have gone through, <laughs> and just say, let me declare to you what you already know, but you don't know, mm. you know? Uh, and, and likewise in Galatians, the, the, the fruit of the spirit, they don't map at all across good and evil. What they are is, is reflections of, you know, as we are now renewed in the mind of Christ, this is what life looks like. And I love the little last verse and against these things, there's no law. In other words, Law just doesn't have a place in the conversation. No. 
That was a long, long ramble. I'm finished. Mark, <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just sitting here um, yeah, joining with you in that because uh, we need language and, and we need to share with our friends language to talk about this wonderful good news. Uh, it's our job. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I won't add uh, much to what you're going to say, but as you, what, what, what I was hearing is it's the story and the story had to be the story of a human being. Yeah. That's, That's what the story had to be. It's, had to be. If I think about good and evil, um, what my mind goes to, that, that does fit into axioms, you know, commandments, policies, behaviours. But when I think about life, I got to think about a person. Absolutely. And that the truth of the story had, it wasn't going to climax in a set of prophecies, it wasn't going to climax uh, in a set of axioms and commandments, or it wasn't going to climax in some abstracted philosophies. Um, uh, it wasn't going to climax in uh, scientific discoveries. It had to climax in a person. Yeah. Um, and every, uh, and, and that person, as you said, the reason the resurrection is the centre of Paul's thinking in Acts 17 and here is the resurrection is the new creation. That's where that's what we are now part of. We're part of life. Yeah. And as you said, the, the the you know a way of making this uh, it's almost like the rays of light that emanate from this new person. Uh, the language which we would, which we people would see in us naturally, would be love, faith, hope, and love as wisdom. Why? So, so wise living is not a set of proverbs. It's actually a, a growing grasp of the person uh, who is Christ, and therefore the people we are. Absolutely, I I can't think of a better place for us to finish this, Tony. No. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I, I think it certainly deserves at least one more conversation, my, my friend. Be great. Have a good day. Good to be with you, mate. Bye. Bye-bye.